Welcome to the Dividend Talk Podcast, episode 83, an interview with the Dividend Guy. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Dividend Talk. In today's episode, we are joined by Mike of the Dividend Guy blog. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Microsoft, Unilever, and some Canadian stocks. See you on the inside. Hey, European DJ. It's that time of the week again. How are you doing? I'm I'm doing wonderful, of course. Uh, another Friday evening, another podcast. So it's the time of the week. Just don't tell my wife. Um, I'm drinking, uh, by the way, for all the listeners, a Summers Bee mango and lime beer. So probably I'm now disqualified as being a real man. But uh, I think we have a a real guy today on the show. So um, maybe he can teach us a thing or two about uh, what real beers are. Yeah, I mean. Look, I'm really excited about today's guest. Um, for those that don't know, it is Mike from, uh, he's on Twitter known as Dividend Guy. Um, and he's with us today. How are you doing, Mike? Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. Uh, actually, I'm a bit going to be disappointing because I don't drink this month. Uh, I'm on a dry month because uh, I had too much over the holidays. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, in general, actually, um, I kind of like the Heineken which is a European beer. But uh, yeah, because in, uh, in Quebec, we have like a bunch of micro breweries. Um, so, and and those that, like you mentioned, like mangoes and, and something else, European DJI, uh, we have like a one that is very good that is based with uh, blueberries. Kind of sounds ah. like a bit weird, but uh, it's actually delicious. And in and, and Quebec, they, they make like some heavy uh, beer, like six, seven, eight percent. Wow, so nice. you don't want to have like uh, 10 of them because <laughs> yeah, you're going to have a fun night. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's good to know, by the way, just for the dividend lovers, Heineken is paying lots of dividends. Just it's such a pity that they have like a pale policy of 40%, typical European. So I believe last year or during the pandemic, they cut their dividend again. So it's such a pity because why, why is Heineken not a dividend growth company, right? It, it belongs there. It should be there. It should be in everyone's portfolio. But somehow the Heineken family has another opinion. So maybe we should write a petition. Yeah. yeah but, <laughs> but I was speaking off air. It could be the time to buy them because lockdowns and this COVID is starting to, to disappear. So Ireland today has announced that everything, all pubs, everything is back tomorrow from 6 a.m. in the morning pubs are back open and they will be full to the brim for the whole weekend there's absolutely no doubt they'll be full all weekend <laughs> nice so so mike do you want to just give our listeners maybe some of them don't know who you are just a brief introduction maybe who you are what you do um so so they know you a little bit more Sure. Uh, I've worked as a private banker and certified financial planner for like 13 years and then kind of got a fed up. And my wife was like, hey, how about we hop on a small motor home and do a road trip for a year? And I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So we jump on that uh, that motor home uh, with our three kids. They were uh, four, seven, uh, seven and nine back then. Um, had a lot of fun, drove all the way down to Costa Rica. Spent there uh, three months, 
living the Pura Vida. So that was like a lot of fun. And at the same time, I was building my membership website, Dividend Stocks Rocks. And I kind of realized that instead of helping like a few hundred clients at the bank, I could help thousands of investors instead online. So I've started building up that business while I was traveling. And when I get back home in 2017, I started working full time. And it's kind of funny because I had no safety net, no more savings besides like, you know, retirement accounts, but like those, you want to keep them until you're 65. You don't want to start withdrawing them at 36, right? <laughs> doesn't make sense. Uh, so I started working very hard and then building that membership website, starting a podcast and so on. And, and basically just talk about dividend growth investing, especially in Canada and in the US. So I'm French Canadian by the accent, maybe you can tell. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so now we cover both um, both countries. Uh, I don't know much about European stocks, so it's going to be an interesting conversation today. You, you'll be surprised how many European stocks you will know. There's plenty of plenty of companies in, in your side of the world that, that you, yeah. you, Unilever, for example, you would have heard of Unilever. Yeah, of course. I mean, th those big guys, we have heard of them and, and I've looked at them like from time to time. One thing I, I have a hard time though, is whenever we look at those, because they trade on the New York Stock Exchange, we got all the, the numbers in US dollars. So if you're trying to find dividend growers, then you have to go back to their website because then like the, the dividend graph goes everywhere, like ups and downs every quarter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that as well, because I do some writing for Sure Dividend and I cover European stocks, but I have to do it in, in US dollars. And I noticed that it doesn't always show that they've grown their dividends, even though I know these companies do. Yeah. <laughs> so I always have to go back and explain it's it's currency, it's it's, it's fluctuation. So I, co I completely get it. It's, it's quite hard, um, but we're similar on the other side. We have to convert to USD and it might not always increase in, in Euro, but it will increase. True in that. <laughs> But it's really cool what you're saying, right? I think that many people in the dividend community kind of dream the life you've been living so far. So I think many people daydream about it, but but they're not doing it. And uh, uh, tell me, what, what did you discover in that year when you were, uh, let's say, traveling around? How did you, how do you look back at that? Was that like a life changing moment as well? Oh yeah, big time. Actually, it was really eye opening on on many aspects. Uh, first, our kids were young, so it was the perfect timing to spend twenty four hours a day with them because they actually wanted to be with us. <laughs> when they grow up to teenagers, it's sometimes not that <laughs> that true. And um, the uh, the perspective of fear has completely changed as well. Uh, you know, before that, you want to have a good job, have a pension plan, and then you fear of losing your house or losing your job and what you're gonna what's going to happen. And then when you're about to cross uh, the um, border of Honduras, where it's like in the top five of the most deadliest countries in the world, and you're driving in that country, so you're not spending time in Roatan, like uh, chilling on the beach, but you're actually going to see the real people, your perspective of fear is completely different. All of a sudden, you know, you have like the real fear that, oh, maybe I, I'm maybe bringing my family to their death or kidnapping or all those crazy stories we heard. So when I came back, I kind of realized that that was life, you know, just doing what you truly love, follow your passions. And I know it sounds very easy to say, and and my um my parents and my my in-laws they were looking at me say okay but Mike like 
you must have like some savings. You must have like a cushion or a plan B. And I'm like, no, I'm just quitting my job. And actually, I don't have enough money in my bank account right now to pay my mortgage at the end of the uh, at the end of the month. And that's fine. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't fear that anymore. And I rather, you know, during this trip, we were going back to sleep every night, and we were just like, damn, today was the best day of my life. Today was amazing. And then the next day. You just said, oh my God, today was also amazing. That's crazy. And then we went like volcano boarding. We went like offshore fishing. We learned how to surf. It was just like plenty of crazy adventure. And it helped like creating like this magical bonds with the family, with my wife. So yeah, I would definitely do it again. Actually, if it wasn't for my kids because they wanted to stay around with for school and family, my wife and I would have sold everything and continued just to travel. Because now, I mean, I've, I've built, nice. I'm not financially independent, but at the same time, I do what I want when I want, and I only need a laptop to make it happen. So that's the magic of this online nice. business that you can create now. Super. Such, a, such an inspiring story. And, and you're right, a lot of people say this, but they never actually put it into action and, and you've just seen to to run with it how long how long did it take you like, like you must have had some fears beforehand how long did it take you to make up your mind okay that's it I, i'm doing this yeah we um actually it took us two years to plan um i i have this crazy habit of making life-changing decision within 15 seconds so <laughs> the the real story was my wife had a daycare at home and she was tired of like working from seven in the morning morning up to seven at night every day so we were having a glass of wine on the terrace on a on a, a summer time and she was like hey i read about that blog there's a family uh, traveling uh, but they were doing it with like bicycles and i was like okay no way i'm going to to pedal up to to mexico that sounds just crazy especially with three kids so let's let's talk about another plan and then we talk about buying a motorhome but you know i didn't speak spanish and most of our trip happened in, in central america i am zero with mechanic like completely zero and then i thought okay so now i need to buy a motorhome understand how an rv works and then if i have ever any problems i have to figure it out um like we didn't have any savings for that either i mean again I could always withdraw from my retirement accounts, but then I would put my retirement plan at risk. So that was not necessarily a good thing. So we weren't afraid of, uh, about a lot of things, but we just thought, you know what, let's put that aside and just use the good old trick, what if? What if it's possible? How we would do it? So at first we had a house, for example. It's like, okay, so I cannot afford to pay that house. So we tried selling it, didn't work out, but we ended up renting the house for a full year. And that went very well. They paid the payments and then that was solved, you know? And then for every single thing, um, that every single problem, we just thought, okay, let's just pretend it doesn't exist and just keep on moving about how we could make it work instead of, you know, it's pretty much the same thing when you're about to invest. There's always like a dozen good reason that 2022 is the year of the market crash and it's not the right time to invest. But that was true last year, three years ago, five years ago. You know, it's always the same thing. So you have all those great reasons for not doing something. So we just put them aside and say, okay, let's figure out what we can figure out today and we'll solve tomorrow's problem tomorrow. I love it. I think um, I should ask my wife to call your wife one time. For sure. <laughs> well, we, we have actually helped a, a few a few families to go after that. And I'm always yeah. open for this because it's just 
was just like the best time of my life ever. Like after that, I was 36 when I came back to Canada and I said, you know, there's a lot of things I want to do in life, but today I can die. Like I, I feel that yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel whole, I feel complete. Of course, you don't want to die at 36, but I was like, yeah, if it ever happens, I would, I would still smile back at my life, you know? Yeah. Nice. And, and so as an investor, what were you investing? back then or was that on hold and and you started when you came back from from that um all my investment are in retirement accounts so yeah. they're all like in canada the way it works is they're tax sheltered so as long as you keep them there uh if you're making money from dividend or if you're making money from capital gains uh you don't have to pay any taxes so i had the pension plan with the bank that i was working with as well so when I came back, I received that money because I quit and then I could invest it. But it was like all not necessarily accessible money unless I have to pay a lot of taxes. And I start investing in dividend stocks in 2010 because, I mean, I've been uh, running like online gigs for a while. And at that time, we were buying and selling personal finance blogs. And we ended up buying the dividend guy blog in 2010. And I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting strategy. Uh, before that, I was like more like a, not a day trader, but almost I was like trading like every week uh, between 2003 and 2010, worked very well trading on margin and so on. But at one point, I mean, I was doing my MBA, I was having kids, I couldn't afford to spend three, four, five hours a day uh, looking at the market on top of having my job and being a father and so on. So when I saw this blog i it was a great business opportunity but then i kind of learned the benefit of focusing on dividend growth investing which could let me beat the market most of the time but at the same moment it was not requiring me to like be as scotched at my screen like three four hours a day it was like you know i can do that like with three four hours a year uh, 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 every quarter and that will be fine yeah i think it's kind of a luxury that people have in north america with retirement accounts i know in poland we have it a little bit here for a few thousand uh, euros let's say I, I believe they started something in netherlands but it's not that common and definitely not with high numbers and in general here when you when you retire you get a pension from the government which is in most countries good enough to to stay alive let's say and have a house and have food and and these kinds of things so I guess we contribute already so much on a monthly basis. I believe 10% of my salary goes every month into pension funds. Yeah, so it, it's kind of the government is investing for me, which I hate because I believe I can I can invest in stocks that I like. And governments are also, um, they are kept in check. So they need to invest in bonds a lot. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I, I did one time an analysis in the Netherlands over the last decade. There was in total an accumulated inflation of 19%. But it was only one percent increase uh, in future uh, potential retired retirement income. Yikes! <laughs> yeah. So in a decade, we lost eighteen percent on future um, benefits. Let's say, and that's reality. Yeah. So people are not necessarily empowered here uh, when it comes to uh, retirement savings. Shall we uh, start a bit with the news of the week? Actually, we, I think we forgot it, but that's no problem at all. 
But is there anything uh, one of you saw on the news this week that you would like to talk about? Yeah, it was a quite week, wasn't it? <laughs> we, we only had Microsoft and Unilever to to talk about. We talked about Microsoft first, didn't we? Because that was that, that was a pretty pretty big announcement. I think they said that they want to acquire Activision Blizzard. Now, I, I don't know much about Activision apart from they used to show up on the screen when I used to play Call of Duty as a kid. That's that's as, <laughs> that's as much as I know about the company. But uh, you guys might know a little bit more. Um, I actually bought Activision Blizzard in December. Wow. And and shared that with my member. And the thing is, uh, well, they're a video game company and they have like a lot of popular games call of duty is one of them but they also behind diablo uh world of war crash um candy crush if you're if you're into uh, mobile phones as well and what happened is they went into a lot of uh problems and lawsuits because they they had like some people that had like a bad culture of like harassment and then sexual misconduct and and Part of like management knew about it and that happened over last summertime in 2021. So the stock crashed, but you know, like the, that is the impact of a few bad rotten apple in the business, but it has nothing to do with the thousands of other great employees that are working there and making great video games. So I was looking at that stock and I thought, you know what? pays a very low dividend, but for the rest, uh, the gaming industry is booming and it's going to continue, especially if we keep having those lockdowns. <laughs> There's more and more people uh, being hooked up on, on video games and, and they have those uh, great doors opening towards the metaverse as well, where they can create those games where you can like even like sell your guns on Call of Duty through NFTs and then all those possibilities that are happening. Uh, they're not there yet, but those are like other growth vectors and they have like hundreds of millions of of, of players every month um, on those games so this is like a great business at a cheap price and then microsoft came in and say hey how about we buy you up buy with them. some spare change you know like 95 billions i think i know 95 bucks 68 billion 68 right? billion yeah. Yeah, so I'm a Microsoft shareholder, and it's the uh, probably all of you are, but the, it's the biggest position in my portfolio as well. And I was first w wondering, like, huh, why would they buy Acti Activision Blizzard? But then I knew a bit about these stories, so I thought it's probably a value play for them as well. Uh, they can pay it almost, out, no, they can pay it entirely out of their cash, right? So it's probably like pocket change in the end, uh, a little bit bit there. And then I thought, like, it's actually quite uh, quite a clever deal because. What Microsoft is also doing is with the cloud, all this data collection, all the insights that they are gathering. And if you look at their whole ecosystem, from that point of view, it could be a really good fit. I, I, I don't know. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that one, but I see there are a lot of uh, options. But then also just like, you know, with Xbox creating more monopoly there. And then on top of that, the metaverse. And yeah. if I w learned one thing about such an Adela, he is a little bit like Buffett, right? He keeps like LinkedIn, there's companies, he keeps them still standalone, but he starts integrating uh, in the whole suite. And I'm curious to see how he is able to, going to do that with Call of Duty and such, whether uh, whether you also see this integration with Xbox, with the, with Azure and all these kinds of things. I'm really curious about that. Yeah, it's, it's exciting times, but, but the gaming industry is huge and, and growing. I think you, you touched on it. I think it's 200 billion, I think, at the moment, the, the industry and only getting bigger and bigger 
I think I read somewhere that over 3 billion people play games online right now. That's, I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? So yeah. for Microsoft to, to, to tap into, I know they have with, with, my, with Xbox, but to tap into that even more now, I mean, they, they just seem to know all the right moves to make, don't they? Yeah, definitely. Actually, before I bought Advi, I I went down in my basement and asked my 16-year-old because he knew a lot more about video games than I do. And then I keep asking him questions about how like they make those Call of Duties and like how like how they make their money and so on. So it was like a great chat about that. And then I realized, you know, if there's one company that is able to bring video games to another level and that has the resources, obviously that's definitely microsoft so and i'm a microsoft shareholder as well so very happy about that trade uh and interesting for those who listens today there's still money to be made because the stock just went up to roughly 82 bucks and the uh purchase price is at 95 so it's expecting to close next year in 2023 um but i mean it's still a good 15 percent uh uh, potential and at the same time uh the market's not going anywhere right now so maybe exactly. it's a good way to to save some money on the side <laughs> nice one yeah uh, nice we might talk a little bit about unilever then because they have uh, they've been in the news quite quite recently i know you did a, a video on them, european dj where they they wanted to buy part of um G gsk spin-off yeah this this was uh... I mean, what can I say? This was just too stupid to even consider. So, and then what is interesting right here is that let's, let's, you know, Unilever got already in trouble over the summer with Ben and Jerry's and their ice creams in Israel and, and, and such, where you could clearly say that management of Unilever uh, has nothing to say because Ben and Jerry said like, hey, here's our contract. You cannot deal with our business, uh, uh, Mr. Alan Yopi, CEO. We do whatever we want and it's an our policy. Um, um i guess they have a very woke policy let's say like that um so there was already some bad signs uh, of what's happening to unilever we have of course the the bid from 3g capital not too long ago to three years ago where uh, warren buffett uh, was sponsoring also the the acquis potential acquisition of unilever right uh, they said to shell no we don't want this and they put some protection in place so that they are effectively also not able to not really attractive to be acquired but then they wanted to buy GSK for 50 billion pounds, right? And that was like the a sales multiple of uh, seven or eight for a consumer staple that is growing like few percent per year. And you know already that Unilever is not getting maximum out of their own business today, right? We either had the shareholder writing from us, Fundsmith saying like, what's the per that they are redefining the yeah. purpose of their mayonnaise yeah <laughs> it's but the, you know it, it, it's like it sounds like a joke but it's really an issue at the moment in unilever that's how they're thinking about the business they're not focused on operational excellence as such i mean internally they probably have some programs like every company but they're not hitting the mark uh, nothing and then they want to overpay for gsk assets and what is important now gsk is doing a spin-off so they're already thinking as a management this is the real value of course, you don't underprice your spin-off already, already, and then Unilever wants to bid even more. It's like just mistake over mistake. You saw the share price reaction, uh, I think, in, in the American uh, market. It went down 15%. I think it was a clear signal. And then we got uh, yesterday the news that uh, the CEO said, well, we don't want to bid any, anything more. But it was already the third bid. And what even annoys me more, 
they only responded after GSK went public that they got an offer. Yeah, and, and this is really tricky because usually you would expect those companies to talk with each other or something like that. And, G and Unilever sounded really surprised. So I think it's like that GSK kind of said to uh, Unilever, screw you, we don't want you. We'll, we'll make it public and uh, you figure it out. I mean, the, the management team seem a bit lost, don't they? they, yeah, they yeah. It, it looks like they've just lost control. And I think any credibility that they had left going into this is, is probably gone. I mean, I, I, I don't really know what they're trying to do with the company. The, the, their situation seems to be they'll just raise prices whenever they can. And they're not really looking at investments or what they can do, as you said, operational excellence to, to improve the actual company. And I think the pressure now is probably going to be too much for that CEO, Alan, to, to I can't see him lasting out the whole year. Yeah. The pressure is immense, particularly, this... from, particularly from institutional investors. They are beating that drum quite loud at the moment, aren't they? They're, they're not happy. Yeah, but only the, the hedge funds managers, because there are a lot of, um, I don't know if it's, by the way, popular in Canada, but in Europe at the moment, ESG investing is kind of a mm -hmm. criteria. Many countries are saying if it's... Um, if it's not like having an ESG label, we cannot invest. So from that point of view, Unilever is really scoring all the points, right? And also what they did with the vegetarian butcher, they bought this uh, kind of the Beyond Meat equivalent, really scaling it up. So they have assets and they have capabilities. They're just under under managed, let's say. And remember, 55 years, no dividend cut, and just one time a 3% uh, dividend cut since the Second World War. So from that point of view, it's an iconic company, right? And to see it being wasted with the, by the current CEO so much, it's just painful as a dividend investor to see that. And do you think that there's any possibility that they eventually do what Procter & Gamble did, which means that looking at their brand, trying to divest some and then optimize the whole thing? Because this operation like was quite a success for Procter & Gamble. And yeah. I was looking at Unilever and... I see it as a potential because, you know, so most of the time I'm not that interested in, in European stocks because I could find an equivalent that is easier to look at on my my on my side of the uh, the ocean, and then I was looking at Unilever like uh, with with such an interesting yield versus uh, yeah. a company like Procter and Gamble um, that has been doing well but now offering like a two percent or something like that. So, yeah. do you think that they could? shift the business around that much or you uh, would need a new management to do that i think they need a new management that's my opinion um on the other end i bought few shares again because i actually like these kinds of periods it frustrates me right but i like it because it allows you to accumulate so every every now and then when it dips i get to buy some shares build up my position at, a, at attractive yields right and i think this company is bigger than the ceo with its history um, the issue they really have is now, for instance, PNG. I don't think they care too much about certain shrimps in a certain lake and uh, or something like that, and whether it would harm the local ecosystem by Unilever being there or by them. And this kind of policy at the moment in Unilever, and it, it's really nice that they went from a shareholder to a stakeholder policy. But I think they struggle to find a profitable business behind it. I, I think they really believe. And, I, and to some extent, I agree with it. If you do good for society, people will want to pay for it, right? But the moment they're just also being competitors to companies that are not living to those standards, like PNG. Yeah. And that's where they're losing just the game. And I think the question then is like, how much time do we have patient, patience to see this turn into real profitability? And I think we're getting impatient here. 
Yeah, but but to answer your question, I do think that there will be divestments. Management have have have, have announced that. that. Yeah, they have yeah. said it already. They they will do that. I expect the tea business to be, for example, that will surely be gone by the end of of the year. But they are looking to divest, and they are working on high growth areas, which which is what they always say. But I mean, where are these areas? And they have to figure that out quite quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good, good. I mean, two two big pieces of news this week that that moved the share prices quite quite quickly. Um, I know a lot of people on Unilever. I think they dropped was it fifteen percent in one day in one day. Managed yeah. to buy calls on that drop and and profited after a day because it was your rebounds, which is which is quite good. But I think earnings is at the start of February, and and I would expect it to to either drop again after that because it's not going to be it's not going to be pleasant. I don't think. Okay. So we might just ask you a few more questions, Mike, if that's okay. Um, For maybe sure. A little bit more around dividend investing and, and so on. So I, I know you, you started in 2010 from buying the blog. Um, so you can just talk a little bit then how you actually got into it. What, was it just from buying that blog then that you, you started dividend investing? Yeah. So I was always invested 100% um, all the time and 100% equities. So when I bought the blog, I just started to buy dividend paying stocks. And at first, you know, like pretty much any investors, I started to have like some metrics that I was following like PE ratio and payout ratio. Yeah. And, and I was automatically discarding any stocks paying under 3% of yield. That was like my minimum was 3%. And then I started with that. And after a few years, and especially like that was right after the financial crisis so there were a lot of choices paying like three four percent that was a lot easier probably versus today if especially if you look at the us market now it's getting very hard to find a high quality company that is growing and is on top of that paying a four percent yield those are getting rare so back then it was not that hard to find but then i realized uh that a few great companies amazing companies were actually paying a two 2.5 percent and so i started to lower the level and eventually completely discard it and put dividend growth instead so instead of looking at the yield i was just looking at okay so if this company has at least increased its dividend for the past five years or 10 years even better and going forward and I found that that was like the main factor when I was about to invest in a new stock, looking at what eventually became what I call now the dividend triangle. So I look at three metrics and I look at the trends. So the first one is revenue because I want a company like you were talking about Unilever that's having a hard time finding growth and and they're basically just following the inflation right now and that's pretty much what's happening so you want a company that goes a little bit faster than that uh microsoft would be a very good idea uh double digit revenue growth and then i was looking at a company that would also generate profits because it's one thing to generate revenue uh in an ideal world i would prefer to follow cash flow but cash flow is usually hectic so it's a little bit easier to follow earnings per share over a five years period and any jumps or drop will just force me to go into those quarters and understand what's happening but then i was looking at those those um those trends and that usually when you find a company that grow its revenue grow its dividend uh, its its earnings it will eventually lead to dividend growth and i've discovered that there was a lot of low yield high growth stocks that could do 
both at the same time. So increase their dividend, but also generate some very interesting total return. Yeah, that's, I think um, this is typical, I think, for people that are investing for longer, right? That we start to, we start to uh, how is it? Feel the pains of failures that we made. And if you start looking back, the signs are clear that there was a revenue decline or there was earnings decline, there was financial engineering. So what you're saying is really um, uh, something I think that will give you a lot of success uh, in, in the years to come because effectively you have a nice screener for checking on very safe dividends here. Unless, of course, something happens to the company, but you get, you get then still so many warning signs and uh, an opportunity to sell, let's say, uh, compared to companies that are already struggling, like AT&T, we could see this mm. coming, coming, and then the spin-off. Yeah, and it shouldn't then come as a surprise, right, that it includes also implicitly a dividend cut. Yeah, actually, it's kind of funny because we uh, we use that screener at Dividend Stocks Rocks as well. And then sometimes some members that were just like, hey, how come you don't like this company or that company? They're paying a great yield. And I'm like, yeah, but if you look at the metrics and where the company's going, as you said, it's it's clear, like the path is going not towards the right direction. <laughs> exactly. You know, they used to increase yeah. their dividend by 5% and now they went to three and to two yeah. and eventually that symbolic one cent of yeah. increase. And this is That's telling killing. you, yeah, it's something is going wrong here and you yeah. have to ask questions now, especially right now, anything that goes over 5% yield today, has yeah. to come up with some risk at the same time it's it's exactly. obvious yeah i think upfi is also a good example of that i know it's really popular it's also a high quality stock um but there's risk around it right with the biosimilars and such and uh, i think just they did an amazing um, acquisition of allergen with the the botox uh, producer yeah definitely but since then, also the price went up effectively, right? Before it was trading around $60, $70, and now it's under $30. And, and to your point, I think that's all the difference here, right? It, it mitigated the main risk there. Yeah, especially now that we're entering into a market that investors are a little bit more nervous and mm. we don't know what's going to happen with inflation and interest rates are going to go up. It's going to put some brakes on the economy. And if you want to, like, skip a few drama and and avoid some yeah. headaches while having those sound companies like i always yeah. say you know what today is always the best timing to invest mm -hmm. but the thing is today you have to be pickier with your metrics and with your yeah. analysis you have to go a little bit further in everywhere to make sure that maybe you're buying like very boring companies but they are very solid as well because yeah. at one, one point or another, things are going to turn sour and you want to make sure that those companies will continue to increase their dividend during those rough times. Yeah. And, and, and do you, besides your um, initial screening, do you also kind of do maintenance on your portfolio? Like, like revalidate those companies that you have in your portfolio or is it kind of more like buy, hold and kind of forget as well? The, the idea is to buy and hold, However, I review my portfolio every quarter. So mm -hmm. what I do is I make sure, and sometimes it's just a quick check. I mean, a company yeah. like Microsoft, whatever I do is once I'm done doing the analysis, I will write down my investment thesis for any mm -hmm. stocks I purchase. So that it really includes all the reason why I want to hold this company, but also all the potential downsides because nobody, no company is perfect and all yeah. of them will come with some risk.
And every quarter, I will review my investment thesis and I will review the quarter just to see, okay, if the company is going towards the same direction or not. So if they're having a bad quarter, that's not a big deal. Yeah. But after three or four quarters that they're not going towards the right direction and they're actually giving me strong signals that my investment thesis is wrong or there's a shift in the environment that makes that now I'm yeah. not like the investment thesis doesn't work anymore, then I'm going to make a trade. So typically yeah. I'm going to, I don't know, trade like two, three times a year, not more than that. Yeah. Um, like this December, what I did is actually was more than tweaking most of my portfolio. I had like too large of an exposure to Apple and Microsoft. Uh, mm -hmm. combined together, they were like close to 25% of my entire portfolio. Didn't feel yeah. that comfortable at one point. So it's a good problem to have because it's because yeah. they surged. Uh, so I sold a few shares, bought, uh, Activision Blizzard with it, and then bought some Canadian banks. Kind of funny because Activision Blizzard is going to come back to Microsoft, so now I have to sell it again. <laughs> but I mean, that that was that was the that was the move that I I, I made. But if not, yeah. I'm I'm trying to buy those stocks and hopefully keep them forever. But unfortunately, sometimes companies are failing us. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's it's quite hard, especially when you analyze every quarter. I know sometimes I get, I don't know if it's FOMO is the right word, but sometimes you just feel like you have to sell something or you no, know, it, it kind of gets me in that time frame. So I prefer not to look at, at my portfolio every quarter. I do because I have a podcast and I have a blog <laughs> and, it, and it forces me to, but I, I, if I didn't have any of the stuff, I would probably just buy them and lock it away and forget because I'm just, sometimes I'm, I'm too tempted to, to do irrational things. Luckily I have your PDJ there to talk to and he'll, he'll, talk some sense into me every every now and again but it's it's hard it's it's really hard for investors particularly with social media and and all that you have so many things coming at you yeah it's hard not to jump on to the next best best thing there, there's a lot of noise but when i say that i review my stocks i rarely review their performance that is not something that i want to look at because as you said you go crazy. You, you look at the stocks and then you're, you're down 20%. You're wondering if it's going to keep going down or you're up 50% and you're just thinking, yeah, that's, that's some good profit here. I should sell. But if I would have done that, I would have sold like Apple and Microsoft way before, which would have been a catastrophic trade, right? So it's just good to um, look at the reasons and not the impact. So it's never yeah. about, I never sell or buy because I'm making or losing money. That's never, yeah. that's never, that's not a good reason for me. So what, what I did last year, um, I took the top 10 of my portfolio, which is I think half of the total portfolio as well. And I did um, just a financial analysis on them to see how safe the balance sheet is and everything. And that was very interesting. So I can tell you that with nine out of them, I sleep well at night. So if there would now be a crash, I, 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 would, I really wouldn't wake up from that. Only from Upfi. There was like red flag after another with the depth, uh, the solvency ratios. And even there, I feel good because it's an anti cyclical uh, industry. People will still need their drugs. Uh, they bought allergens. So I had a feeling like this is just a matter of time and it will start to become amber and then, and then quickly green already. But it was really insightful because it also gives peace in mind, right? If you know that you have top notch quality like Microsoft, Apple, uh, and also Unilever with just really good balance sheets, then why worry, right? It was actually the, the stocks then that you want to double down on on the market crash. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. Even like in March of 2020, when the market completely collapsed, I was looking at my companies and I was like, okay, so I have a, a, a telecom companies, which is Telus in Canada. Um, they are working in a, operating in an oligopoly. They are like three people, three uh, companies offering wireless services, and we will definitely need our cell phones. So this one is Czech. And then I had like some Canadian banks, but they are like the most well-capitalized banks in the world. Uh, they took their provision for credit losses, and yet they would still show payout ratios of like 55% after wow. taking billions in provision for credit loss. So you're just like, okay, so they can afford to pay their dividend. Check, this one is good as well. <laughs> and then we had some great utilities, uh, companies that are like 100% regulated. Uh, I've been, I have like Fortis in my portfolio that has been paying and increasing its dividend for 48 consecutive years. So wow. that's a lot of recession. That's a lot of like interest rate going up, going down, inflation, name it. And yet they have been always been able to increase their dividends. So when you have companies like that, you mix it up with like some Apple and, and, and Microsoft, which like strong growth and also lots of cash flow. I don't, I, I didn't want to trade any of my stocks on that on those days. I was just, yeah. yeah, they're down, but I mean, you know, the business is still growing very well. So that's not a problem. Yeah, it's like the ultimate cash machine that you've created there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and are those also then some of your favorite uh, dividend stocks? Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, among my my favorite one on the Canadian side, I'd say that Canadian banks are just amazing. We discussed that a little bit before we started mm -hmm. recording. Uh, there's like five major banks in Canada and there's a sixth one, which is mostly operating in Quebec, which is National Bank. Uh, I used to work for them, so maybe this is why I love them so much, but they actually outperform uh, the other big five for the past 20 years. So, and past 20, past five years, uh, like you put pretty much any kind of date there and they've just been doing amazing. And one of their recipe of success was they, they used the classic, savings and loans business model from banks and then they decided to go after capital market so they were um, making sure that the market is liquid making the transaction between etfs and and stocks for example they went also big time with wealth management so targeting like wealthier clients like one million dollars and up of investing assets that was like quite a success and then most recently they started to go with more acquisitions so they bought a bank in cambodia which was the largest bank in the country which is kind of like similar of like their business model where they're a small bank but they're dominating their market in the province of quebec well now they bought a small bank in cambodia but it's a big bank for that country uh they did amazingly well they went with creditgy uh it's a specialty finance um credit in the US. So they have like all those other growth vectors on top of just saying, you know what, Canadians economy is doing well. And, and that's one thing that's kind of funny, uh, as opposed that we don't have that in, in US or in Europe, is there's a lot of regulation around banks. So it's not that because Canadian banks are smarter. It's just that they cannot, they're not allowed to do like subprime mortgages and stuff like that. They were just not allowed to take that amount of risk. So sometimes um, investors are just like, yeah, Canadian banks, they're like too boring. They're, they don't want to take enough risk. They don't bring in enough growth. But then when you look back, you just realize that 
they're making money year after year and it's just increasing and they're increasing their dividend accordingly and they're incredibly solid. So that's pretty much the secret of their success and a great oligopoly strongly regulated by the government. So that makes them very strong and it's almost- It's kind of a utility. Yeah, it is. It's it's yeah. really, it's like that, but with less CapEx, like less like billions of dollars that you have to invest everywhere and probably like a little bit more growth perspective because of that. Yeah, nice. I would argue in Europe, by the way, we also have a lot of regulation, but um, I believe there's a reason why all those banks are having fine after fine after fine because they just don't respect the regulations. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So I, I deliberately try not to ask you about Canadian companies because I know we have listener questions around that. So we might just jump to some of these questions and um, let's see what, what the guys have asked us. Um, so Carlos Terry has asked us the first question, and this is around Johnson Johnson. So he wants to know, what does it mean for us as shareholders when a company has a spin-off? For example, Johnson Johnson looking to spin off their consumables. Uh, that's an interesting one, though, because when you look at Johnson Johnson and a lot of investors make the mistake thinking that they're like almost half consumer cyclical uh, consumer uh, staples and then the other half is is healthcare. And it's actually not true at all. Like the consumer is like very small portions. And, and now with those lawsuits, it makes sense for them to just get rid of it. And I did. I actually did an analysis when they announced it in you're going to end up as a shareholder having like two different companies. One that is growing, which is pharmaceutical. Actually, like the medical device is growing, but not that fast. It's like pretty much stable. And then the big growth uh, from Johnson Johnson that came for the past five years all came from pharmaceutical. So they make specialty drugs and they're harder to replicate. So even though their patents uh, expire, it's going to be uh, better for them. They're going to be able to surf on those cells a little bit longer than regular drugs. And even then, they're very innovative. So that works well for them. And the other part is the consumer part, like consumer products, which it's pretty much going sideways, even slowing down a little bit. So I I do have shares of Johnson Johnson. And once I'm going to receive like shares of like one of the two Johnson, I don't know how they're gonna like call both of companies. Uh, I'm not sure I'm gonna keep up the uh, with the uh, consumer part. I don't know about you guys, but I'm I was when I I, I dissect the company and I separate everything, I was I didn't fell in love with that part. I, I had the same, uh, I, I did similar exercise like you. I think they had no revenue growth almost over the last 10 years. I, I estimate that the spin-off will be probably around 15% uh, of, of total share price, I guess. And if, if I get the stocks, I own already enough consumer staple. So to have such a small position added to my portfolio, I, I probably uh, clean it up every time in the spring. I do spring cleaning and then I'll <laughs> probably uh, sell it and uh, buy something decent back for it. But we'll see, um, if, they, if they price it really at a cheap price, then it will be stupid to sell it. Um, but I don't expect a lot of growth there either. No, and, and they will likely struggle to provide a dividend growth policy as well. I mean, yeah. some some consumer staples, uh, like I, I just can't st stop thinking about craft. When like before they merged with with Ains and then went back public, even before that, I was like, those guys, they don't invest enough in, in products and in marketing. 
and and everything is going sideways with this company and now they came back public and they had even more problems and eventually cut their dividend because they were not growing fast enough and i, I kind of like I fear that the consumer part of Johnson Johnson is that like hiding behind the rest of the business model yeah. where nobody cares if they don't grow because you look at the overall picture and it's like, yeah, this business is doing fine. But yeah. now I'm, I mean, I think, I think that the pharmaceutical will continue to increase its dividend. The other part, I'll be very cautious with this one. Yeah, we are effectively getting a biotech company, right? Uh, yeah. uh, there, so which is actually also really interesting, and I hope it will take also a bit the cap off of the share price. It will be interesting to see if the clockware of seven percent earnings plus <laughs> plus uh, dividend growth will stay the same that we're so used to, right? It might actually also be more volatile now the consumer business goes out. Yeah, uh, let's see. Um, Manny Mystery has asked us; um, he would like to hear some of your insights on big Canadian banks. He is long on ticker BMO, um, which is 81% of his holdings, I think. Um, and I think you've answered a little bit, but he wants to know why Canadian banks are run so well. All right. So there are six banks, as I said. Uh, you have classic banks like Roy, uh, like TD Bank and, and CIBC. Those are like more closer to the savings and loans. Um, what is interesting about TD Bank is they have one third of their business now in the US. So they expanded in the, in the States, especially after the, uh, the financial crisis. A lot of Canadian banks found great opportunities to buy like smaller branches over there and, and establish a good core business in some states. Uh, so TD is doing very well. Their underwriting process to write loans is very good. Risk management, A+. Not too in love with CIBC, to be honest, because they're kind of like, a little bit behind on everything, a little bit too classic to my taste. And, and it's good to have interest income, but at one point, I think for banks, the real money will be made through uh, capital market and wealth management. In that regard, uh, BMO is uh, Bank of, for Bank of Montreal is probably one of the most advanced. They started by acquiring a private, a private bank, uh, Harris Bank, like 20 years or 15 years ago, um, that was like a most a very one of the most important uh, private bank in Chicago. So they're very strong in the wealth management, and they were among the first Canadian company to create ETFs, Canadian ETFs. So they're well input there. Obviously, if the more you make money from capital market, the more volatility you will bring to your financial results. So you're going to have sometimes amazing results with BMO. Sometimes not too good. Uh, recently, they acquired also more branches. I can't remember uh, from whom, but I think it was from a European uh, company, if I, I'm not mistaken. Not too sure why they want to acquire more branches, especially in a world where we're trying to move more digital and nobody likes to go <laughs> at a bank, actually wait in line, uh, talk to a teller. That's not necessarily the future for banks. So I'm not too sure why they make that move. And my favorite too would be National Bank that I discussed earlier and Royal Bank. Royal Bank, why? Because it's one of the largest bank in Canada, pretty much like number one, number two with TD in terms of assets and, and, uh, and uh, market capitalization. But Royal Bank has 50% of its business um, coming from wealth management, 
insurance business and also capital market. So they're well diversified and that's what I like about it. And especially because there's a lot more money to be made with this transfer of wealth. We had like a huge baby boom um, that all those guys are now like 65, 70, 75. So that fortune is being transferred to the new generation. And you'll have a lot of questions about estate planning and wealth management. And this is probably where they're going to be able to make a lot of money out of it. Oh, they asked those questions on Fintwit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, cool. And Manny has asked a second question around, do you feel there's any undervalued Canadian gold miners? I'm not a big fan of the energy sector and the commodities as well. And I'll tell you why. I don't know what's your take on those, but what I don't like about them is their entire business model depends on the price of that commodity like regular like regardless if it's gold or if it's if or if it's the oil price and those are quite volatile so one day they're making ton of money and the next day they're barely bankrupt you know so it hurts cash flow and when you have like such a bad cash flow going up and down all the time that makes very bad dividend growers so i'm not a big fan of gold mining stocks. If you really want to go towards gold, I would go for a company like Franco Nevada, which uh, operates a royalty based model. So they have like lands and then the the gold miner takes the risk and then they just pay a royalty on what they found. So they have virtually no debt and they have been one of the rare dividend grower in Canada for the past at least 10 years. So I would nice. go with this type of company uh, instead of trying like, you know, like gold was very popular in 2020. Uh, the ounce of gold was supposed to hit 3000 US dollars by the end of December of 2020. And yet we're two years later down the road, still <laughs> waiting for that $3,000 to happen. And we're definitely not close to it. So yeah, never been a fan of gold and uh, just too much volatility and not enough value out of them. Yeah, no, gold is always something you have to time, isn't it? You have to, it, it goes up and down. You you need to get in at the bottom. And you just never know when that when that bottom's in. So I'm like you, I, I stay away. I stay away from gold. Um, Billy Pritchard has asked you specifically, what are your core Canadian dividend growth stocks? Um, core Canadian. Uh, I have National Bank and Royal Bank, obviously. <laughs> uh, I have some railroads. Canadian National Railway. Uh, what is great is it's it's a bit different than, than what you have in, in Europe, I guess, because uh, for us, we don't travel much <laughs> with trains, but we do them to we do we do use them to transport products. And CNR is the largest uh, railroad in Canada. It goes from S to West. It goes to the States um, like strong dividend growers as well, low yield. Uh, but you know, you cannot really replace uh, railroads. It's an asset that has this quality, like this barrier to entry that is almost impenetrable. So they exist and that's pretty much it. So this is all, this is the part of the company that whenever the market goes down, this, this one, I never looked at it because I know that they're still going to be there anyways. Um, I have Telus telco company Fortis. Uh, utility and one of my favorite is actually Alimentation Cochetard, who almost bought Carrefour uh, in France uh, last year in January of 2021. Um, it's the second largest convenience store in the world. 
Uh, and they have grown by acquisition for the past 25 years. They have a very experienced management team. So we were talking about management team at Unilever. Totally the opposite at Alimentation Cochetal. They pay the right price, and when it's not good, they just let it go, and they move on to good. the next deal. So that's very uh, 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 one of their strong points. And for those who are concerned about the major shift towards electric vehicle, they do have um, a lot of convenience stores with gas station and supercharger now in Norway. So they use Norway as their laboratory, and now they will um, start uh, implementing superchargers in the US and in, uh, in Canada. And their goal is basically they have all the locations and they're thinking, well, while you charge your car, well, we're going to convince you to come inside and then grab a snack, have a, like buy your beers or whatever for the for, for the weekend. And, and they're going to be able to make a lot of money out of that too. So it's not just about like, yes, there's a huge volume coming from fuel cells, but most of their profit is coming from uh, the convenience store. It's, it's funny, funny that you say that. I was the other day speaking to someone with a Tesla and this person told me, oh, you know, I love going to Ikea or something like that because you can charge your car for free. So I effectively get a lunch for free, get to spend time there. And I think if if it's for such a company, if, there's some, if they have some solar panels on the roof or something like that, and they can supply electricity for free, it's a great business model because like pulling people in like a magnet because they can charge for free. And at the same time, you get them to really spend time there. And I think this kind of... Um, uh, I say services. It's not. It's not a lot spoken about, right? But I see it's quite uh, uh, quite interesting to to approach it like that. Yeah, definitely, and especially in North America, where distance is a huge thing all the time. Like, there's a lot of people they're driving like one hour, one hour and a half to go to work every day. Well, at one point, those guys they will need to charge. <laughs> you know, it's it's going to be hard a little bit, and 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 focusing on that like special service that yeah. will become the norm eventually i think it's smart yeah cool cool um so we have a question here from alexandrus and it is quite an easy one probably for you because you've mentioned the company but it's fortis inc or canadian utilities limited yeah so fortis fts trades both on the canadian and the u.s uh market under the same ticker so pretty easy to find uh they're like one of the i would say the mother of dividend growth in canada with 48 years of consecutive increase uh and and what i like about their business is that it's super boring you know it's like 99 regulated utilities so what they do is like it's a perfect edge against inflation so they have those assets across north america and and a few in in bermuda and then they just go see the regulator and say hey there's inflation so we have to <laughs> increase our rent so there you go so we increase our rates and uh and then they, they move on so i, I kind of like those very boring business which i found since i'm 100 percent invested in, in equities all the time they work as what i call deluxe bonds in my portfolio mm -hmm. meaning that they will pay a decent yield it will increase over time. And I don't expect much capital return out of them besides a dividend in growth. But over the long period of time, it will still pay a little bit better than a bond. So, and it will bring that stability 
um, the fact that they're generating cash flow all the time. And and it's kind of funny because I was talking about the dividend triangle at the beginning of this uh, this podcast, where you're, I'm looking at companies showing uh, revenue growth, earning growth, and dividend growth. And, and Fortis is a perfect example of that. It's pretty much straightforward between five to 6% every single year, clockwork. The three metrics goes almost perfectly accord, like each of them. So you, you can expect that for several years to come on top of it. So if you're afraid of inflation, if you're afraid of the market will crash, Fortis is definitely a fortress. <laughs> I can hear it already. You love monopolies, right? Yeah. I mean, well, they're easy, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so if I hear you talking, you know, the first thought that comes to my mind is like, we should send some Spanish politicians to Canada also for an internship because uh, our Spanish listeners, they don't trust their politicians. They have some great utilities in Spain and, and dividends are just unsafe because there is kind of the thinking, I guess, what I hear from uh, our Spanish listeners, like that the government will want to pull away from those assets. Like it's unfair that those companies are earning money. It should go back to the population because prices are rising. And I, I guess is the thing that we speak a lot about in this podcast, really the, the, the mindset difference between Europe in general and Northern America, where it's more capitalistic, I guess. Yeah, actually, it's kind of funny you mentioned that because in Quebec, the we have hydro quebec which is a public company but not a public like not trading on the public market but it belongs to the government and it's it's like one of like it's they're generating hydroelectricity obviously and and it's probably like the like the most valuable asset the government has and at one point there were like discussion about putting it public and and doing an IPO and then there's a lot of people they're just like yeah but you don't realize like we're paying such a low price for energy right now like in the province you don't want them to go public because it's going to double and yeah. uh and, and it was not a popular uh politic vote so whatever is like is is uh public right now will probably stay as is because it would cost way too much for the government yeah. to buy back and but I, I don't see it the other way around either. I think it's going to stay this way for both for on both sides. Ah, lucky you. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually funny because the government is receiving like more than a billion dollar a year in dividend from Hydro Quebec. So, so they're like dividend growth investors. <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay, um, dividend wave has asked uh, asked you for an attractive Canadian stock, if not part of the stock pick of the week. Which SUP, uh, that's part of the table question, which SUP was bought? Yeah, the, SU, the, the SUP uh, is uh, it stands for Stand Up Battling. Ah, cool. <laughs> and and I was asking last year uh, because we uh, because of the pandemic we we couldn't travel much, so we decided to spend more time in Quebec, and uh, I I fell in love with SUP instead uh, with Stand Up Paddling. I wanted to do some with my daughter, so I asked my Twitter followers like uh which is the band brand or like what can we like what should i do with that and i ended up like buying like two like entry-level sup but that are uh inflammable so uh not not flammable but and what's what's the word Infl in, in inflatable 
inflatable. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's going to take up in flame. It's on a lake, right? Yeah, inflatable. Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, and actually, it was it was great. But I can't remember the brand. But yeah, uh, ten minutes of palm, so it's good for the arms before you go on the lake. And uh, I live like. 15 minutes away from a, a big lake here uh, in Quebec. So that was like the perfect setup for me and my daughter. We put them in all, we have like a, a big Jeep. So we put them on the Jeep. We go there, have fun over the summertime. So it's great. But uh, yeah, right now it's like minus 30 and then we have three foot of snow. So no more SUP for a few months. <laughs> and is it minus 30 Fahrenheit or Celsius? Celsius. Hallelujah. Oh yeah, it's wow. been and I and I'm running like four times a week and I can tell that this week was quite brutal because it's not stopping. Usually we have like a few days of bad weather like this, but now it's been two weeks of like minus 25, minus 30 every single day. So yeah, uh we don't we we stay inside. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's crazy. So maybe then the next question that, <laughs> to keep you warm from the uh, IRA investor, what has been your biggest investment mistake in 2021? Um, in 2021, actually, I didn't make any mistake because I didn't make any move much, right? So that was a good mm -hmm. thing. However, uh, one trade that didn't go well, uh, but I, I kept it anyway, is uh, I bought Viacom CBS uh, ticker VIAC, uh, right after the edge fund was forced to sell it. And then it went around like 40 bucks. Uh, I was expecting that the stock would recover a lot faster because I mean, it's stable telecommunication company, uh, generating a lot of cash flow. The valuation is super low. So I thought, yeah, that's just like a good speculative place. Uh, what I like to do with my portfolio is I have like 90% of my portfolio, which is really, like really buy and hold dividend growth focus. And then I will have like a 10% that I allow myself to play with. So sometimes it's like, sometimes it's a dividend play, sometimes it's not. Um, so Activision Blizzard and Viacom are two examples. So one was very successful. The other one, I'm still waiting to, to, to make it happen. I, I don't see it as a mistake. I see it as a bad trade, obviously, because I'm down like 20% on it or something like that. But I still believe in my investment thesis so far, so I'm going to keep it. Um, what was rough in 2021, though, is it was one of the rare year where I don't, I didn't outperform the market. So I was doing well. I mean, it's kind of funny when you say, oh, I'm up like 17% and it's not good enough. <laughs> it's kind of weird to say, uh, but it's probably the result of having my portfolio doing so well over the past five years that at one point or another, and this is maybe like a good lesson for all investors, not trying to chase yield or return uh, year after year, but look at the big picture. So when I look at 2021, I'm like, yeah, I lag big time. But when I look at the past five and 10 years, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm way ahead. So sometimes, you know, it's just a matter of like having a bad year because you made those returns in the past and the market is just catching up. So, yeah, it's interesting that you say that because we get this question a lot about um, how we're doing according uh, compared to the S&P 500. Uh, I, I've not been beating it over the last five years, for sure not. Um, but it also makes no sense for me actually to compare. And I'm curious how you looked at that, because for me, I'm I'm, I'm buying dividend stocks. And if you look at an S&P 500 or something like that, uh, my portfolio isn't even supposed to be constructed like the S&P 500. 
So I always have a feeling like if I start to benchmark myself, benchmark myself with the S&P 500, I'm kind of creating this false illusion to, illusion to myself. And um, I said, at the same time, um, uh, I'm not focused on like, okay, you know, otherwise I could as well put my money in the S&P 500 because I want to live off the passive income. And the S&P 500 for me index is totally not attractive from a passive income point of view. So I'm wondering uh, how you look at that uh, from a benchmarking point of view. Um, I will use two type of benchmark. The first one is, uh, and I totally agree with, with you with on your point about looking at the S&P 500. And I will also look at the TSX, uh, which is the equivalent on in, mm -hmm. in Canada, the TSX 60. But obviously the way they are built does not reflect my investing strategy so it's like mm -hmm. one thing just to say it it would it this is more as a total return approach to see yeah am i losing my time that much but if i would if i'm if i would be close to it wouldn't matter because as you said the purpose here is to have a growing source of income from dividend not necessarily mm -hmm. to beat the market so that would be the first benchmark but the second yeah. one is i look at two dividend growth etf so, okay, yeah, and, and, yeah. and the reason why I look at them and say, okay, so obviously when you pick your own stock, you have to do your own due diligence. You do like mm -hmm, today mm -hmm. we've mentioned like a bunch of stocks, but it would be yeah. foolish just to open your brokerage account and then type it in, right? You need to yeah, make some, exactly. you, you have to put some, some work into it. So is it worth it versus just yeah. buying a dividend growth ETF? And yeah, exactly. so far it is, but because what is great about ETF is you get that instant diversification at a really cheap cost. Mm -hmm. But when I look at their top 10, 15 holdings, there's always companies that I would not ever buy in my portfolio. Yeah. So yeah. I cannot, I, I cannot make wrap my head around having them indirectly through that ETF. And this is why I never, yeah. I, would, I would never buy ETF for that reason. And, and can you buy American ETFs like the Vanguard Growth uh, VIG? Can, yep. can you buy some? Oh, lucky you. In the, in America, uh, sorry, in Europe, they're having this UCITS where the government thinks, the European Commission thinks that they know better for us to protect us. So they want us to buy uh, crappy ETFs uh, that come from European uh, banks. Uh, <laughs> high, high ETF costs uh, compared to those American ones. Uh, poor uh, dividend performance, for instance, and they say that they are doing that to protect us. So I know I'm a bit complaining today about this, but it was this week in the news again, and it just pisses me off because they are belittling us as uh, investors, like we can't make any choices, and they literally push crap towards us, which then gets being purchased by our pension funds, right? They buy this crap yeah. then again. So it's like crap over crap over crap. And nobody understands why. They say because they're... Uh, because if those comp let's say Vanguard would then need to comply with the standards that we have in Europe, but it's like a, it's like a false uh, how is it a false perception of risk uh, in my opinion because you just have underperformance for over a decade. Yeah, and especially when you look at Vanguard or uh, or iShares from BlackRock, which is a company that I love actually. Uh, they're quite performing ETFs, so there's no there's yeah. no reason like behind there's no rationality behind that saying oh no no so, you should not invest in great ETF at very low cost. So that doesn't make sense. We have iShares and such, but they need to have UCITS, so we cannot get uh, uh, ETFs like with ticker symbol SCHD uh, swap. I think I believe it is. Yeah. 
VIG, um, it, it's, it's, there are some tricks there with option trades, but it's almost impossible for the regular uh, home gamer. Mm. Anyway, I'll stop my complaining about politicians <laughs> before you know they give me a tax hike, which they, by the way, gave at the 1st of January. So uh, <laughs> shifting my mind because I'm getting crazy from this. Um, Marta is asking us whether we are looking at ASML. Uh, it's probably more a question for, for, for UEMF uh, and myself yeah. after they doubled their dividend uh, uh, this week. And he, he believes it's actually not that expensive if you really look into uh, their future growth prospects from a free cash flow point of view. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue that it's <laughs> that it's not expensive. It has a PE ratio of 42 or something, I believe, the last time I looked. I mean, the client of capitalist spoke about this. He always, always talks about this company. He's been telling us about this company for a long time. The time to buy that was probably March 2020. It... it, it dipped around 200 250 I, I don't know it's a great company they do great things I, I don't know if you're familiar with them like they they pretty much make machines that that the chip makers rely on like intel and, and all that they use lithography and and all sorts of techniques to to make these chips um but they're a quality company but too expensive for me yeah and a monopolist yeah i mean there's nobody else to 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 do what they do it's, it's a bit like your canadian but uh radio. Yeah. <laughs> i mean it's it's a hard gig to get to get into they seem to have it all sewn up and uh, it would be hard for someone to come in and take over at, at this point yeah. how about you uh european dj no no nothing uh, not interesting for me it should uh, at least half in share price before i get interested so at, at least yeah but hey, yeah. they're they're a Dutch company, so I thought you might have. Yeah, I I love them as a as a as a company, but not as a stock for me. It's just overvalued from that point of view. I do, it will take me like twenty years for the um, for the dividends and the earnings to grow into into the in, into the amount I would like to see out of my investments. Yeah. It's a clear it's a overvaluation. But I understand why people love this company. I mean, I, I honestly believe if, if ASML stops selling machines um there's a lot of shit going to happen in the world because cars will not be able to be produced uh in the long run because there's a shortage in ships chips that they're kind of trying to fulfill with the production of machines so um it's probably in the top three companies in the world at the moment if you would like to list me three companies three businesses i think it's in the top three in the world with microsoft together Cool. And are they growing double digit? Because I don't know this one, but like, uh, yeah, earnings, are they like very fast? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think I, I don't know exactly. Uh, don't pin me on, but I think one single machine probably costs more than 100 million or something like that. Okay, we're talking <laughs> about these kinds of pricing power. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not worried too much about inflation. <laughs> no, not at all. No, no, not at all. I think uh, if they really want to, for instance, TSMC are there uh, are is a large. I mean, every chip manufacturer needs their machines effectively, so you can't get around them. Um, okay, uh, Catalan dividend investor has asked a great question. Actually, um, are there any things you miss in life before you are? financially independent now I, I know you said you want financially independent but maybe back before you you made the transition to be as free as you are yeah so yeah so just to be clear i'm not i'm not sure what financially independent would mean actually depending on like who like 
defines it. Um, I like to see myself as being a retiree in a sense that I do what I want right now and when I want it. So uh, before recording, we're discussing that we've been in uh, in Vietnam for a month in January of 2020, right before COVID hit. And that would be a good example. You know, I was like working maybe like 10 hours a week there. So I was still working, but I could take off for a month, do whatever I want during the, that time. And when I came back, I still had like, like plenty of time off during the summertime and so on. So it was just like, I work all the time and I'm free all the time. It's, that's pretty much like the way that I've designed my life now. Uh, before that, I was, as I mentioned, a private banker, which means that I had a lot of um, like objective to, to meet at the end of the year. And one thing that I didn't like is those numbers, they reset down to zero every first of the year. So you're always running after your tail all the time. So I don't miss that at all. Uh, one thing that I realized I missed was since then I work online. So I have like my office at home, so it's fine. But then with the lockdowns and with the pandemic, I realized that I didn't miss not seeing people throughout the day, but then after with the lockdown, I couldn't see my friends or other people over the weekend as well. And then I realized, oh my God, that I, I missed that a lot. So that was one thing that that completely that was completely different because with my job, I was working with clients. So always in contact with people. And I just love that. Uh, but besides that, I mean, no, like I said, the my my level of risk tolerance has been through the roof since I went to that this trip. And after that, I cannot, I don't feel uncomfortable. I had bad, of course, I had like bad days. I had like, at the beginning, I was working to make enough money just to pay for my mortgage at the end of the month, which is kind of a bit stressful. Uh, but over time, it has been just so much fun. And, and maybe one thing that is weird is sometimes it's lonely because, you know, you, you, you're, you're in your own mind, you're doing your own business but you're kind of like creating this world around yourself, which nobody quite understand what you're doing. <laughs> and then people are just like, you're working from home. Like you have like screens all over the place. And then like those lights and stuff, what do you do exactly? And I'm like, yeah, I'm helping investors to, to build up their portfolio and invest with more conviction and, and, and build their retirement. And they're just like, yeah, I don't, so you're a consultant. I'm like, no, I'm not. And then there you go. You're just like, <laughs> you just can't explain what I do. So yeah, sometimes it's a bit lonely. Um, but fortunately, I have a partner, so I can I can wind down with him and then just say, yeah, like I just feel alone today. So, but yeah, nice. cool. Um, Centrino has a question for you, your uh, European DJ. He wants to know why Microsoft is your biggest holding, as its dividend is minimal. Uh, really simple. I started. Uh, I, I bought my largest. Uh, uh, I said uh, chunk uh, at forty dollars. So it just grew since then. I bought a little bit more at eighty dollars. For me, it was clear when Sachin Nadella came in, and I, it was trading at the yield also around two point seventy five percent there. I, I read the book from uh, Sachin Nadella hit refresh around that time, uh, where he was in the midst of the transformation, and it was clear to me that. This guy would change uh, Microsoft forever. He came from the Azure business division. So it was written all over the wall what would happen to, to Microsoft in the upcoming years here. And I saw Amazon was already knocking it out of the park with AWS. And then I work a bit in IT. And I know that um, 
uh, I would say it. People, uh, companies want to have options, and also Amazon is a competitor or a risk to many businesses and many industries. So, not every company wants to have their data stored at Amazon. Microsoft has always been neutral in the ecosystem. They are not threatening, um, I said, Walmart to take over their business as well. Yeah, they are not threatening to take over the healthcare business. Yeah, so for me, it was so clear that Microsoft would 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 be able to get something out of it and. It's easy to say afterwards, um, but I was really convicted around that. So I just grew into it. Uh, uh, it's probably one of the stocks I spent the least amount of money on in my portfolio. <laughs> and, and that's, I think you bring a very good point. I have like a big chunk of Microsoft as well, but one of the reason, and I think it's fundamental for a lot of investors is to let your winners run. Yeah. You know, when you have a great company that is doing great things year after year, why would you sell it? And exactly. yes, eventually, eventually exactly. it's gonna it's gonna be huge <laughs> in your portfolio. But I've done that with a few stocks, and that probably explained most of my returns. You know, so you are allowed to make smaller mistakes, but if you let your winners run for a long time, you get with like hundreds and hundreds and sometimes one thousand. Like in your case, you're you're getting yeah. close to one thousand percent return. Probably yeah. you you get it with the dividend. That's amazing. Yeah, you know. I I'm now yield on cost between four and five percent. Yeah. So it's uh, a high Microsoft. yielding stock. <laughs> it's a high yielding stock for me uh, on cost, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um. So uh, B has asked two questions. Uh, the first one is when will Montreal Canadiens win the Stanley Cup again? Oh my God, I didn't expect that to have that on, on your podcast. Oh, that's a rough one. <laughs> so here's I, the thing. I don't know uh, what it means. <laughs> okay, so um, I, that's, that's a very funny, but I'm doing a lot of webinars. And after the, the end of the webinar, we do like a, a long Q&A session. And, and from time to time, I talk about hockey like as an analogy, or I just talk about the Montreal Canadiens, which is like one of like the most successful uh, sports team in the world, uh, along with Manchester United and then the New York Yankees in terms of championships won, like in their history. They're at like 24 championship won. The wow. problem is this year, they're going absolutely nowhere. And last year there was at the Stanley Cup final, but they kind of like just, you know, when, when everything falls, at the right place it was just like destiny but definitely not because they were a strong team so they just happened to go to the final but this year they're good they're the worst team like across the 32 <laughs> teams like they're they're beyond bad uh so when are they going to and they're locked up with so many long-term contracts which like some players are not doing well and like our best defenseman is not playing this year and is likely going to retire and the we have Carey Price which is like one of the best goaltender in uh, in the world but he hasn't played this year he had like personal problems and then he had like one knee that was completely scrapped so basically not going towards the right direction at all so i don't know maybe like now we have like a new general manager we have like a new vp so hopefully we're gonna end up at the end like like last pick up like some good draft some young players and it's gonna take a while so i'd say at least a good three, four years before we get competitive again and maybe think about something. So yeah, it, those are going to be rough years. <laughs> and, and excuse me, excuse me, my stupidity, but 
Are we talking about ice hockey or real hockey? No, it's ice hockey. Okay. Like for us, it's real hockey. There's no other hockey. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. But that's good. I, I mean, I you felt know, we... the one on the field, uh, which is also an Olympic sport. I think is it. Oh yeah. I have no we... clue anymore. Anyway. No, we don't. We don't follow no. this one. See, see. But I mean, <laughs> I, I don't mind. Well, here in, in Canada, we have two types of football, right? So we have your football, and then we yeah. have North American football. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and the second part of that question was, uh, do you have any idea which company in Europe or US that is like, you say this company's name much better than I'm going to say, but it's um, Alimentation Kushtar. Um, uh, yeah, that was pretty good, actually. Um, I don't think so, because the largest one is 7-Eleven, which I think is Japanese, if I remember correctly. Um Besides that, I don't think so because you know it's a very highly fragmented market, especially in the convenience store, and and most of it are just like super small businesses, which makes this industry very interesting because you can like buy um, small convenience store chains everywhere all the time. But yeah, no, I I'm not aware of any equivalent. And if you look at grocery stores, that's completely different. And this is one of the reasons why the stock actually dropped by 10% when they announced that they wanted to buy Carrefour in, in France because it was a grocery chain. And that has nothing to do with convenience store. You know, you're talking about high volume, low margin, while convenience store is completely the difference. It's small margin, it's a high margin, low volume business. So we're not seeing like there's one is perishable. The other one is like selling goods all the time, you know, just like those Doritos and other snacks, they, they last forever. So you don't have to mind about the expiration date. So, um, so yeah, no, I cannot, I cannot think about anyone. But I, I believe, um, they own circle K, right? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Because we have the gas stations here in Poland from circle key. Yeah. Okay. okay it's from them. Cool. I actually, it, it's kind of funny because even on my trip in Vietnam, they had Circle Key everywhere, and I was like, "Ah, I feel like home." <laughs> wow, nice! I didn't know that. Cool, cool. And then the last question of the day is from Ryan, and he asks us, "What are we going to do with Unilever if it continues to correct and go down?" Buy more. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do else. Uh, I don't see the company going bust or anything. Like I said, this company is bigger than its management. So for me, um, you know, below 45, I typically nibble in a little bit. It's what I did this week. I don't buy all at once. It's kind of my safety net to always have a time period in between to, to prevent catching a falling knife. Um, but, but I just continue buying Unilever. It's not a full position yet. Yeah, it's actually on our buy list at Dividend Stocks Rocks too. Uh, following this summer, when when it dropped the first time, mm -hmm. um, it's always hard to catch a falling knife. So obviously, this one is a little bit behind right now. Uh, but I think I think today's market is a good example where everybody expects to like earn what like twenty percent return on any stocks after like three weeks of holding. Mm -hmm. It's kind of yeah. like this kind of market, and yeah. then people are just going crazy because they have to hold a stock for six months. And I'm mm -hmm. like, dude, you should hold it for like 60 years, not six months or exactly. a month, you know? Exactly. So exactly. I, I think that whenever the tides is going to turn around, 
companies like that, boring companies like Unilever will do well. So yeah, it's just, you buy it, you forget about it and that's it. Stop talking about it, you know, yeah. <laughs> just erase that line in your brain and just come <laughs> back in a few years. Yeah, we, we had it also like last week with Cameron Stewart, right? And I like this mind, this mindset a lot, like thinking like, okay, what would be the ultimate widow stocks? Yeah, those stocks that if you die, you know, your, your, your wife doesn't need to touch, would probably not even know of its existence, but just see money appearing on the bank account every month. <laughs> those are the ultimate stocks, I think, for dividend growth investors. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Okay, with that, that's the end of the show. Um, it's been it's been incredible listening to you, Mike. Your journey is an inspiration for for lots of us. You have, I, I would say, the courage to do what lots of us talk about, and it's I mean it's 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 incredible. So thanks a million for coming on. It's been it's been a pleasure from me and from European DJ. Yeah, thank you guys. Uh, I had a lot of fun and it was nice. Actually, I'm actually discovered a new company as well. So thank you for that. I'm going <laughs> to look up ASM. What was the thing? ASML. ASML. There you go. Yeah. So I'm going to definitely take a look at it. Obviously, 42P ratio is a bit high, but uh, I'm going to put it on my checklist. <laughs> yeah. And what we will do also for the listeners, if you're interested in learning more about the Dividend Guy, we will put the links to also Dividend Stock Rock in the description of this podcast. So you can also find on Spotify and such if you listen it on your mobile phone and also to your blog and such. We'll put all the links in there so that people can really easily uh, reach out to you, find you and get in touch with you as well, Mike. That's great. I'm a lot active on Twitter. So if you have any questions on Twitter, go ahead. And uh, if you want to have a second great podcast on top of Dividend Talk, I have the Dividend Guy podcast as well. Yeah, I cannot imagine that um, I said people interested in dividend investing only spend half an hour, hour per week listening to information. So uh, we'll put the link to your podcast as well in the description uh, here. Cool. Awesome. Good job. See you all later.